0: Praise God that we get to worship Him. What an opportunity, what a privilege, what an honor it is to lift up our voices and allow our praises to be called holy and acceptable in God's sight through the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray, and as I pray, I'll invite you to worship and uh, approach the Scriptures eagerly, knowing that as we turn to the Word, God is delighted to pour out his spirit on his people. Thank you, Lord, for an ordinary building and an ordinary people and an ordinary book that through your spirit is made extraordinary. I pray that you would change people's lives, that you would prick hearts, that you would encourage and bless and grow and strengthen your church. pray that you would call a people, raise a people, bless a people, care for those who have low hearts today, encourage those whose hearts are full of joy and cheer, and shepherd us all. You're the the perfect pastor. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, uh, (laughs) let me just say what a blessing it is to be back preaching in front of you this morning. Uh, For the past two weeks, you might have noticed that I was able to take a break and uh, rest, enjoy rest and refreshment from preaching. I'm super thankful that you, the church, and the elders allow me to do that. Last week, our pastoral intern, Dylan Bennett, um, uh, preached for us. That was wonderful. And the week before that, my family and I actually had a chance to travel to the Midwest, Bloomington, Illinois, uh, to to see extended family and spend uh, Christmas together. It was really, really good. Uh, usually, when my family and I go away, we make it our priority to attend a local church and to find a place to worship, and we found, it a, lo- uh, found a local uh, PCA church, Christ Church in Bloomington, as I said, and I was able to sit under the pastor's preaching. He did an amazing job. It was so refreshing to sit underneath the Word. I actually know him. Right now, he's the associate pastor there, uh, soon to be the senior pastor. He started at that church, as just a youth group attender, then was put in charge of the youth group, then became a youth group pastor, then a pastor of young adults. Now he's he was then the assistant pastor, now the associate, soon to take over. And I also, uh, I also know the senior pastor, he's my father in law, Bob Smart. Uh, right now, Christ Church is in a season of transition. Um, they just are about to finish a huge building expansion expansion and they're they're planning to hand over the senior role to Brad and also the whole new church. I went early on Sunday morning. I was able to walk through the premises and the new building. It was wonderful. Not only was the property super um, impressive and the building super impressive, but even more the people. I went early, I talked to people, I stood after, I talked to people. There was such a warm gospel presence inside the doors of the church. Tons of volunteers, tons of programs. It was like a a big well-oiled machine. Here's the thing, 30 years ago my father-in-law started that church and that church had just 33 people. They met in a, in a rec center where they worshiped in an exercise room lined with mirrors. And the children's ministry only had one class. It was a nursery and it was in the women's locker room. It's a really small beginnings, humble beginnings. I know Bob. Bob is a godly man, a gifted man, but programs, teams, building expansions, and volunteers are not his thing. And so I looked around at the new building and all this great extravagant worship with hundreds upon hundreds of people coming to worship and also coming before and after. And I couldn't help but be confused. It was hard to wrap my mind around how all this happened through one man's leadership. But then as I was confounded, I thought back to a conversation that Bob and I had way back when I was dating Lizzie. Bob used to take me out to Starbucks and get to know me. He used to search my heart allowed me to search his heart. And one time we were having coffee together and he said, James, might I share with you my life verse? 2 Timothy 2, 1. Paul is speaking to the man, the young man that he's mentoring and he says this, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, trust to faithful men who will go on to teach others also. And then it clicked. As I looked around at that church that had become great like a fortress with all of its people, ministry, programs, things, and success, by and large, I was able to see that this is where it came from. Making disciples, a.k.a. Christ-loving people and leaders who would go on to be raised then to only do the same thing that happened to them with people. And then those people, being recipients of mentorship and gospel-centered discipleship, would then go on to reach other people to a thousand generations so the church might be built and the kingdom of God prevail. Don't claim to have reached the pinnacle of ministry or understand all things pertain to the gospel or the church, but there is one thing that I am absolutely confident of, something that I long to take with me to the grave for this entire ministry, and that is raising leaders in the church so that the church grows with health and those leaders could be raised and then sent out into the ministry, mission field, onto the pastoring field, and or raising lay leaders who would just go on to lay, raise more lay leaders to the glory of God. People who receive discipleship, then to disciple others. This is what, it is what it means to follow Jesus. I want to show us this this morning. I want to show us this idea that, that, that God desires leaders in His church. God desires leaders in His church, thus, it is appropriate and right to desire leadership. And I know from a worldly perspective that could sound prideful at first cuz who dare say look at me I'll lead everyone have everyone turn to me I'll be in charge I'll do it but what I want to remind us of this morning as we broach this topic is that to desire leadership for the sake of Christ in his church is actually one of the most humble things that one can do why Because in it there's a call to mirror and image Christ. And how did Jesus demonstrate and teach his disciples to lead other than through his own life, which consisted of service and suffering to the point of death, so that those he is leading could live? Why would anybody want to do that then? Uh, Well, because I believe that there is no greater practical way to knowing and experiencing the person and power of God than this. In other words, the greatest gift of leading the church and God's people is that at the end of the day, in this unique and costly way, yet glorious way, we, that individual who leads, would be rewarded with Christ. Jesus is the goal of leadership. If you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn it on or open to Exodus chapter 18. You'll see the title ready up there on the screens. You got to get this. God desires leaders in his church. Three points I'd like to show us this morning are this for those of you who take notes, you know I'm always proud of you. Uh, here they are number one, the work. Number two, the requirement. And number three, the promise. End result, we're going to begin our time by reading the whole entire chapter up front. This is the most important time, actually, of the past, of our time together, so I encourage you to tune in. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people. How the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zephora, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he had said, I have been a soldier in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he had said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bow down to kiss him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them in the way. And how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. We're going to tune in to the second portion. Now they're going to see some leadership uh, themes. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? And all the people stand around you from morning till evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice, I will give you advice, and God will be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make known the way which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, Look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So will it, it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure And all this people also will go to their place in peace. Here's the conclusion. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of Israel and made them heads over people, chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided for themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country." My brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Very thankful for it. Right now we're moving to point number one. I'd like to show you the work. We're now in chapter 18 of our study of this book, Exodus, and the theme that comes to us this morning should come to us as no surprise, especially as we consider or think back to what Dylan taught us last week in chapter 7 through Moses' battle with uh, Amalek and his people, you might remember the dilemma of the text. The dilemma was that Moses needed help. Whenever he held up his hands in battle in this victorious position, God's people Israel prevailed, and every time uh, he put his arms down, they began to lose. And so logically, what Moses did was try to keep his hands up during the entire battle, but since it went on so long and he was weak, he couldn't do it. So what happened was two of his good friends, Aaron and Hur, came to hold up his arms for him. Last week, the lesson that we learned is that God's people along their spiritual way and journey in life need help from each other. And the point, which comes to us a second time this morning, is that so do our leaders. story has progressed. Israel's no longer in a battle. They are a victorious people, a sizable people. Their nation indeed has now become great. Thus, the work and responsibility of Moses' leadership has increased tremendously. I'm going to show you more of this as the story unfolds, but before I do, I want to highlight one thing, and it's the one thing that Moses, the author, wants to make sure that we get above and beyond all else pertaining to the success, status, and blessing of Israel here, and that one thing is that it's been God. God is the one who has made this people great and blessed them abundantly. If, uh, if you look there in verse 1, as we're introduced to Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, the first thing that the story says is that Jethro heard of all that God had done for Moses and the people. But here's what I appreciate about the story. It's real. Because it doesn't paint for us an ignorant picture of Israel here, but it reminds us of their story. You'll see it through the revealed meaning of Moses' son Gershom's name. We're uh, invited to remember the condition of God's people. how, how, How it wasn't always so good. How there indeed was a time when they were in Egypt still being God's people and they suffered. And in fact, even here as they're in the text, they have yet to inherit the land. They're sojourners. And then we have... For us, the name of Moses' his second son, Eliezer, which means the God of my father was my help. He delivered me through the sword of Pharaoh. It's a Canaanite name. And since Canaan was indeed the promised land, we understand that this was a name of hope. So under the larger theme and umbrella of Israel's success, we have two sub-points, 2 subtopics. Topic number one, hardship in the journey. And topic number two, Hope met with the faithfulness and power of God. If you look there in verse 8, we see these two themes and topics evident. After Jethro arrives at Moses' place. The text says this. Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. Here's the two themes. All the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. You got, you got to get this. It's it's a constant recurring theme throughout this book that we have seen over and over again. Main theme, two themes for God's people here in this story have been this, hardship and deliverance. Hardship and deliverance. Hardship and deliverance. Parkview Church, for those of you here who've been here since the beginning, brought up to this point, does it sound and feel and look familiar? And although the hardship is real, therein lies the hope which was in the Lord's faithful hand to deliver. And Moses is confident to make his boast in this. He has seen the Lord deliver over, 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 over again. And the Lord delivers and so Moses boasts. And so this is how I imagine the conversation going between Moses and his father-in-law. Moses probably looked over to his father-in-law Jethro and said, Pop, I'm so glad you're here. It's so great to see Zephora and the kids. Look around, Pop. Isn't this amazing? Look at all these people. Pop, can I tell you something? And Jethro leans in. Yes, son. Tell me something. Moses looks at his father-in-law in his eyes and said, "Can, can I just tell you also that this has been the hardest thing I've ever done? But God has been faithful, Pop." I know you heard the big story of our success as a people, but can I tell you some of the small details that you probably don't know? Yes, you see, the Lord had delivered us from Egypt, but did you know that on our way out from the land, Pharaoh was so fearful of God that we actually plundered the Egyptians and all their goods on the way out? Did did you know that after Pharaoh let us go and we were journeying in the desert, he then changed his mind and started to pursue us And he pursued us, and our backs were against the wall. The Red Sea was there. We had no place out. We thought it was over. And just at the right time, Dad, the sea parted. And I know it's hard to believe. We walked through the the sea, and literally the sand beneath our feet was dry. And there in the nighttime, as we passed through the sea, The Lord God himself led us his people with a pillar of fire. And then we looked back to see where Pharaoh was and he was coming close to us. We started to get nervous but that just at the right time God crashed down the waters on our enemies. I uh, I know I'm talking a lot, Pop, but can I continue to tell you the story? Uh, After he defeated the The enemies, um, we started the journey into the wilderness, and uh, we ran out of water twice. Everyone thought they were going to die. And God, on two separate occasions, provided water for us to drink. And then we ran out of bread, and God literally sent bread falling from heaven. Hardship and deliverance. Hardship and deliverance. This is the theme and story of God's people. Hardship and deliverance. God chooses hardship to provide room for him to deliver so that when his people are delivered, they know his great love and power, and then they worship and boast in him. What I want for us to see here is that although Moses is the man of God's own choosing to lead and mediate his covenant and a great people, Moses here takes no credit at all for the success of God's people. It uh, kind of reminds me of, uh, maybe, you're, maybe you watch sports, it kind of reminds me of like the post-game interview with the star athlete, Right? So the post-game interview, the star athletes um, interi- or asked questions, and, 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 and if he's a Christian or has faith in God, uh, many of those athletes begin the interview by saying, first off, before I answer any questions, I just want to give all glory to God. That's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Um, they're probably more um, authentic than I believe them to be. Uh, but here's why I say that. Because these are star athletes. I mean, these are gifted and talented men who are the fastest in the world, who have the, great, the greatest levels of hand-eye coordination. And so when they say, first off, I want to give all glory to God for this W, I'm like, man, I'm a little skeptical. Are you sure? Is there any ounce inside of you that is tempted to take a little credit for this win? But um, I, w- I want to show you here from the story that when Moses says all glory to God, he actually means it. Why? Because up until this point of the story, he has contributed nothing to the success of God's people. I could just imagine him in the post-game interview, post-war interview, with the stammering tongue stuttering uh, in chapter 3 by the interviewers asking, um, them asking him about his small faith. About his doubting God in chapter 5 about his inability to keep his arms up for his team to get the win last week in chapter 17. Moses is weak, and he knows it. And so when he says all glory to God, he, he's being for real that he had nothing to contribute to this, so God, through his great boast, gets all the glory. Here's the point that I'm trying to make once we're able to grasp the fact that we have not contributed anything to either our life's success or salvation, then and only then, we can, with most humility and appropriateness, bring the most glory to Christ. And then we can look back at our life story and think about it. How all the ways God has brought us Faithfully to get us to the point that we're in. Uh, as you think about your life story and success, I just want to ask you are you self made or are you God made? You look back at your life story, all your gifts and competencies. How do you consider yourself in this? Can you see that it has only ever been the Lord? who has been faithful to you to bring you to this point. What has God done for you? How has he provided? How did he save you and come through for you the very last minute when your life was in the pitch or you teetered on the line? Christian, can I just remind you of that day, week, or season of your life that illustrates and demonstrates and evokes the most humble praise? The moment or season of your salvation. How did it happen? Can you see that while you were dead in your sin, by the grace and mercy of God, He saved you? How did God get a hold of your heart? How did he grip you with love and stir your affection? Look at me. If you saw me 16 years ago, before I became a Christian and were able to see me here this morning, you'd never believe it. I have a wife who loves the Lord I have children, I have a church, I have a degree, I have a home, and most importantly, I have been made a new man, a new creature. And my whole life, I say before you, is the work of God. I am a product of grace. I did nothing to stand up here before you. I failed seminary classes. I flunked ninth grade. I come from a crappy household. But God, by his mercy, saved me. Did he save you? This is how free and merciful he is to his people. Let me tell you about this church. All of our growth, new members, financial position, staff, is all because God, out of mercy, freely, has decided to deal with us with grace. New coffee lounge. New gospel-centered principal over there at the school. New community group leaders. New men's and women's Bible studies and leaders. People's lives being influenced and changed by the gospel, baptisms, salvations, hospitality teams, budget increases, Christ-centered music, a preaching team, community outreach, building redone, premises looking beautiful, new Christians and non-Christians coming to worship. God did this. Uh, I didn't do it. The elders didn't do it. No leader did it. It wasn't innovation, creativity, gifting, or competency. It was God. God chooses things that are foolish and lowly in this world to shame the wise and to bring to something things that once weren't so to show and display his power. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power is from God and not us. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Oh, may we, as a corporate body and individuals who follow Christ, always be humbled by grace to know the mercy of God. Nothing in our hands do we bring, but simply to the cross we cling. We are desperate, dependent, and needy for God to show up. And when he shows up, this is how he provokes most appropriate worship. Um, for those of you here who are in leadership and/or have a need, and you belong to Christ, I want to read to you His words and promise. Don't worry about your life. Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? If God cares about the birds of the air and the flowers of the grass, how much more will He take care of you? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The theme of the Christian life is hardship and God's faithfulness. Amen? That was point number one. The work I'd like to move through the text continued to show you now what is the requirement of the work. So like uh, here's the snapshot summary of the picture and theme that we're seeing from this text. Jethro has now come to his son-in-law Moses and has rejoiced over God's work. Uh, The next day after the two um, enjoy one another, Moses goes back to working and pastoring the people. I mentioned to you before that Israel was big. The exact number is just around 600,000 or north of that. And the text says, if you look there in verse 13, that Moses was in the rhythm of pastoring these people from morning till evening. And so uh, Jethro comes to him and says, son, I I have something to tell you. And Moses says, okay, what what is it, dad? Um, What you're doing is not good. Pop, what are you talking about? I'm pastoring the people. I'm a pastor. This is good holy work. Yes, of course it is. But son, there's thousands of them. Verse 17. What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. For the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. This is a picture of a father and son-in-law exercising healthy relationship. It's possible. Praise God for this. This father-in-law and son-in-law love each other. And Jethro is a great father in law, and Moses is a great son. What I want for us to notice here about this picture before Jethro gave any advice to his son, he celebrated his success. And so, yes, the older man is giving advice to the younger man, and all the grandparents here said, Amen. That was a joke. Come on, people. But what I want for us to see from this text is that Moses is not quick to give advice, but first rejoices and exercises his advice through the context and, uh, of relationship and the capital that it has. They love each other so much. His son-in-law looked up to him so much, and that takes a lot, that when Pop got to the camp, Moses ran out from his tent and kissed him, bowed down to pay cultural homage and respect This is how good the relationship was. And out of that relational capital, uh, Jethro begins to give advice. But notice how he gives advice. He doesn't start by giving advice, but he opens up dialogue by asking a question. What are you doing? Verse 14. It opens up dialogue for a conversation. And then, as a godly, or I'm sorry, as an honest and straightforward uh, piece of advice, he says what he says in verse 17. You're not... Um, what you 're doing is not good. Um, so I want to stop here and, and say that uh, I think this picture that we 're looking at here from this text should be words of encouragement and also rebuke to my generation and those who are coming after me. and here 's why i 'm saying what I 'm saying, because here we are looking at a picture of a, yener, a younger generation honoring and looking to an older generation with open ears to take advice. By and large, what has happened to my generation and the generation following is that we have written off the old way of doing things. And so we're right in our own eyes. We got this. We don't need you, Grandpa. I, I think I've just seen, especially through social media, a continuing rebellion and, the, and disrespect um, in regard to what the Proverbs display as the glory of an old man and old woman. What is it? Their wisdom and life experience. There is a way that seems right to a man. But the end is death. What Jethro is saying here to Moses is good. Notice Moses is quick to listen. He doesn't only listen so well that he allows his father-in-law to finish a whole sentence, but an entire paragraph. Proverbs chapter 9 verse 8, don't rebuke a mocker or he'll hate you, but rebuke a wise man and he'll love you. Instruct a wise man and he'll be wiser still. Teach a righteous man and he will add to his learning. Moses here is adding to his learning through practical life wisdom which contributes to his way of righteousness. All the most successful godly men and women I've ever seen in my life in faith walk with Christ has been eager to be rebuked and listen to the wide words of counsel through the previous generation who loved and feared God. Every single person that I've seen raised into leadership has been discipled and mentored and has been quick to listen and slow to speak. And then in verse 21, Jethro continues to speak and give him advice and says this, Look for uh, able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, who hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. So what's the dilemma of the text, or is Moses' position as leader of God's people? Dilemma is that he's limited and he can't do it all himself which we have to be careful in calling a dilemma because it's not a sinful dilemma, it's a human dilemma. It is right for us to receive help in our positions of leadership, organizations, people, businesses, and church. We are limited beings and we need help. But since this passage falls within the context of Israel, And the church, I just want to open up to you my uh, my heart here uh, about our church. Um, You should know that I don't want to lead alone. I love our elders more than I I love almost everybody on this planet besides my family. But it breaks my heart that we only have three. What's best for us is to have one elder per every ten families. 15 deacons, 15 community group leaders, two pastors on staff, a team of mercy-driven people who take initiative to care for the needs of the congregation. What's the requirement in prayer? That those individuals will fear God and be trustworthy enough to hate a bribe in a secret place. Notice here how Jethro doesn't say to his son-in-law, you see the need and you be hurry up to fill it. He doesn't say plug and play. Find successful men and capable leaders who are competent to lead these people. No, this list here is actually a list comprised of character. How do you know a man's character if you do not actually know the man intimately? So we see this in the New Testament. It's been paralleled from Israel to the church. If you think about what happens in 1 Timothy chapter 3, what is the list of elders and deacons for the church? Is it one of skill, competency, and gifted leadership, or is it character? This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an officer or an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone doesn't know how to manage their own household, how can he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he might become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified." Not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not uh, greedy for dishonest gain. Let them be tested first, then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, sober-minded, and faithful in all things, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ." What does Parkview Church need in this current season? Faithful men and women of God who tremble at His word, who hate a bribe in secret places, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I'm not looking for perfect men or women. There was only one perfect man, but we are looking for individuals whose character is godly and above and beyond reproach. Men, hear me. I'm calling to you. Ah, forget that. God's calling. It is right to desire the office. But we do not call men to be leaders of this church if their character is not godly. Who's going to take the baton of the gospel to the next generation? I'm dying here. Come on. I'm not dying. I'm okay. I feel fine, but I'm like dying with this desire for people. I know it's funny. It's actually not. I can't let... I, I just want to do all, everything in my power not to let the, the, the baton of the gospel stop with this previous generation. What men are going to take the charge? If my heart aches this much, how about Christ for his bride? so that my generation and the next generation and the next generation can have the gospel according to his will written in his word. I'm not going to plug and play. I'm not going to fill spots. We can't do it. That would be uh, laboring in vain because the Lord has to build a house. So we wait. So we wait and boast in limitation of our span and reach for godly people to come. And when they come one by one, we rejoice knowing that it is the Lord who called and equipped, who's ready for the office. It is not the man or woman, the man per se to the office, who went to seminary, has fine sounding theology, has done a couple ministry things and then looks at the need and says, I could do that. What is the right take on the office? I see the need and I am fearful and tremble at that need. But I have a desire because my lips have been touched by Christ. And after, like Isaiah, having been touched, I can't help but keep my hand out of my pocket and said, here I am, Lord, send me. Have a congregational meeting after church today. Uh, you got a, um, uh, an email in your inbox about a month ago concerning a man named Jeff Brex. Today... Uh, We're going to vote on Jeff. God has been faithful to answer our prayers and give us a pastor right at the right time. Let me tell you, man, I went over to have dinner at the breakfast house when they first got here. And I was like, man, I can't wait to pastor these people. Guess what happened? He pastored me. (laughs) I'm thinking like, oh, my gosh, we're having dinner together. And this guy's exploring my heart. I don't even know how he got here. Paul says to Timothy, it is right for a man to aspire to the office. So hear the invitation, men, and strive for God. Amen. I'd like to close our time by showing you the blessing and promise was actually as apparent by the very last portion of text in verse 23. Um, Jethro finishes up what he was saying to God and says this, Moses, if you do this, God will direct you. You'll be able to endure. All the people will also um, go to their place in peace. And so what Moses did was listen to a wise man and elect leaders. He took Jethro's advice, delegated the task of ministry. Israel then was pastored and cared for. I want to I finish this, 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 uh, this sermon this morning by reminding you uh, that there is no perfect pastor. I am the furthest thing from it. If you know me, you'll be able to see that all over me. There's no perfect elders, there's no perfect deacons or leaders in the church, but there is a perfect Savior, which is a reminder and call of grace. Jesus, in all of his perfection, as the Son of God, chose not to be served, but to serve and lay down his life as a ransom for many so through his perfect sacrifice he would call and save sinners by grace and then extend them to extend that same mercy to those he longs to care for and so the practical blessing of the gospel is not just salvation being called to God but it is also being called to the church and in the institution of the church we see the heart of Christ That God longs for leaders by grace to reach people and care for them. And so he fills them with his spirit and empowers them to do it. Gives them his word, which is a word of wisdom. And then calls them to relationship, to know and intimately care for. To provide, to protect, to love, to serve until death. Why? So the church may grow up into full maturity, into its head, into Christ. So that working together, fully equipped, each member of the body working together, they might exalt the Savior who called them to Himself. Leaders, I want to finish by reminding you that in order for you to continue to serve, you have to return back to the one who served you and wants to continually serve you. Abide in Christ, there is no other way to serve without first being poured into. And this is what Jesus, the great elder of the church, wants to do so you can do your work effectively. And uh, and there's others of you who just need to be served right now, and we are delighted to serve you. Actually, this is our mission of, a ch- of the church. Creating a place for the wounded and weary to rest and find care from Christ and his people. If that's you, this is why we exist. Oh, it takes being known. And so come into our community and let us care for you. Might I remind us all that it takes people to care. I'll finish by saying this. Last week after service, I went upstairs with three guys. We went upstairs in the attic, and uh, they're handy guys, and they were looking at all the rafters and beams. If you don't know this, the the attic's already framed out for building. And their eyes lit up. And they said, James, look at all this, man. I said, yeah, isn't it amazing? And they saw potential. And if they were thinking like me, they saw a place that could be filled with more people for more ministry. And oh, how we long for that to happen. But what is the priority as we grow that we don't forget to pastor and love and serve people and make disciples? And so I pray that our church, one by one, with patience, would call and equip leaders who would raise leaders to a thousand generations for the glory of Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for your word. Bless us as we finish our time of worship. Visit us. Send your Holy Spirit in a special way to to give us an outpouring. We love you and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.